You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. As we begin a new sermon series these three weeks in what must be the greatest story ever told, uh, and possibly the greatest story known in human history, the story of the prodigal son, uh, we're reminded that stories... Tell us about our relationships, don't they? This week, we've been telling stories to our children all week long. And I just wanted to pause, by the way, and say thank you to those of you who made that possible. Hundreds of children, hundreds of uh, you with our children filled uh, Woodland Park and were running across this church all uh, week long. I couldn't get a a meeting space in this church this week because all of our rooms were booked uh, with kids, it was a kind of a holy chaos in this place. Uh, thank you for being a part of that. But we've been telling stories uh, with our children. And we're telling stories this weekend. I don't know how many of you are uh, visiting family or will have visiting family for the holiday weekend. And I bet what you're going to do is you're going to share stories with one another. I had a friend visit me, my old college roommate, uh, a few weeks ago. He had business in town, and so he came through and uh, we just had a couple of evenings together, but he and I shared stories with one another. That's what you do, right? I mean, you think we haven't been in very good contact with one another. We haven't really kept up. There's a lot of information about the current stuff going on in our lives we could talk about. We didn't talk about that. We wanted to tell the stories. In fact, in front of my kids, he told some stories. I wish he hadn't told. Uh, <laughs> So a story about the time I had a classics midterm coming up and I was procrastinating. I was a little behind in the reading. I was a lot, hundreds of pages behind on the reading. And it was late in the day. I hadn't gotten to it. I was goofing around and I tried, you know, I perfected some big time wrestling moves and I wanted to use this on one of our friends down the hall. It's called the Samoan Drop. And I did it so well that I gave myself a concussion and I was seeing double and uh, therefore could read nothing for the rest of the night. Um, Didn't do so well on the test. (laughs) Why did we need to tell that story? It was because that story reminded us what was at the center of our relationship. It said something about what pulled us together. And we do that when it's a holiday weekend, like the 4th of July. We tell stories, right? We tell each other stories about Paul Revere. And, and, uh, uh, Squanto, and the, uh, who, out of his generosity, helped the pilgrims and, uh, General Washington, who when he was a boy chopped down a cherry tree, but then could not tell a lie about it. Uh, we tell stories of exploration and daring and Lewis and Clark. We love to tell stories of Ellis Island, don't we? And, and how we greeted the world, uh, with open arms as a nation. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Love to tell a story of Rosa Parks who would not give up her seat on the bus and through her dignity gave us dignity as a nation, a nation that moves towards uh, justice. All of these stories we tell to one another because we want to remember and share and believe what it is that's at the center of our national relationships, pulls us, it holds us uh, together. So we do this in all of our relationships. These stories that we choose to tell, they illustrate the rules, the assumptions, and the expectations of our relationships. 
The problem is that sometimes the stories that you and I have to share about our relationships do not always point us to a center that's healthy. We have all kinds of other stories to tell. Sometimes stories that become the predominant narratives. You were late to the party. He lied about the car. You know, you are always doing that. Gee, that just wasn't so smart. These stories point to a center And a center that doesn't pull us together, but oftentimes repels us and injures us. A center that might be performance or transaction. If you do this, I'll do that. Or fragility or addiction. Centers of anger or fear. But the question this morning is, can you and I appropriate somebody else's story and tell it as if it were our own? Can we remember somebody else's story? Can we share somebody else's story? Can we believe somebody else's story in such a way that it begins to recenter our relationships on something that is healthy, something that will bring hope, and something that will give life to those relationships? Jesus thinks so. It is to do exactly that, that Jesus has offered human history, this story, just a story, the story of the prodigal son. It never happened. It's not biographical. He's not telling us this story because he wants us to know what happened to these three people. They never lived. He's telling us this story because he wants us to find our lives in this strange circle of relationships. Think of the context. Think of the content. The context in which Jesus gives this parable is a context of broken relationships. You got Pharisees and scribes. And hey, they don't really want to hang out with very many people. And you got uh, tax collectors and sinners, so-called. And nobody wants to hang out with them. And in the context of that polarization, Jesus seems to be the one person who can wander through any relationship and make it whole. And people are going, what's that all about? And frankly, they're grumbling because it just doesn't seem right. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about relationships. Father, son to a father, father to a son, a brother to each other. And I'm going to encourage you to tell this story again and again and again. And I'm going to watch what happens to your relationships as you do. As we look at this parable over the next three weeks, I want to invite you to think about some primary relationships in your life. Maybe some relationships that aren't as healthy as you would like them to be. Might be your family. Might be your work group. Might be the gang you like to hang out with. Might be your small group. I want you to fix these uh, relationships in your mind as, as you read this text together. And see how it begins to inform, enrich, and heal those relationships. All right, so let's begin to dig into the story. We're going to begin today with the main character, uh, the father in the story. You think, what? I thought the main character was the guy that would have the, you know, the title role, the prodigal son. No, actually, the prodigal son is not the main character in this story. It's the father who's driving the narrative 
Everybody in the story is responding to the presence of the Father. And if you, by the way, find this story so familiar, so sort of bland and predictable, it's because you have not paid attention to the Father. He's the one that turns this story around. If, by the way, you find your relationships are so bland and familiar and predictable, I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps you have forgotten the Father's presence in the midst of those relationships. He is wild. He is present. He's the one that you and your relationships are responding to, whether you know it or not. So the main character is the Father. Let's open our Bibles up to Luke chapter 15. And uh, t- today we're just going to read the first few verses of this. You'll find that on page 850 of the Pew Bible. Uh, we're going to read the uh, verses 11 through 13 together. So if you're able, would you stand? And we love to read God's word aloud and stand to show him respect as we do so. And uh, if you're visiting, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. The Father. The Father is a scandalous figure who puts grace at the center of every relationship. Think of him that way. The Father is a scandalous figure who puts grace at the center of every relationship. It's easy to miss this fact. Uh, in fact, uh, our, our Muslim friends rather like this parable because, unfortunately, they read it through the typical Christian's eyes. And the way typically we Christians understand this parable actually agrees rather nicely with Muslim theology. You see, the Muslims, Jesus is just a good prophet. And when they read this text, they see a story in which there is no need for incarnation. There is no need for God to have a son. There is no need for any atonement. If the Father is meant to represent God, then don't we clearly see in in this story that the Father has the capacity simply on his own to forgive sins whenever and whyever he chooses to do so? Well, If you read the parable through the average eyes of the average follower of Jesus, it's a tough argument to deal with. But I'm thankful for a scholar named Ken Bailey, who some 40 years ago, out of his career of scholarship and lecturing in the Middle East, said that's absolutely the wrong way to approach this parable. We ought to approach this parable seeing it through the eyes of those who first heard it through the eyes of those in first century Palestine. And Ken Bailey was able to get this perspective as he lectured and traveled and lived in the Middle East over 40 years. And he said, you know, a Middle Eastern peasant 
would see this story very similarly to the way Jesus' original audience would have seen it. And he says, if you see it through that way, you're going to see the incarnation. You're going to see the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're going to see the atonement. You're going to see the grace of your heavenly Father. We see this primarily in three of the main actions of the Father as they show up. I'm going to look at these fairly quickly with you, but I, I want you to see what Ken Bailey has shown scholars. And the three major actions are, first in verse 12, uh, he divides. Next, in verse, verse 20, he, the Father, runs. And then finally, in verse 28, he, the Father, pleads. In each one of these incidences, what you're going to see when you look through the eyes of a Middle Eastern peasant, as Ken Bailey invites us to do, is, in a word, shame. Think of this. There's a lot of shame in the story. First, he divides. Verse 12. Well, you know the story. The father's got two sons, and the younger of the sons comes one day and says, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. What he's asking for is the father to cash out his life right now. He wants the gifts more than he wants any relationship with the giver. And he says to the father, you know, it's been nice, dad, but I'd really be better off if you were dead. And I don't care much about you, but what I want is your wealth. And a Middle Eastern peasant would say, this is shameful. Before the eyes of the whole village, the whole community to witness this, scandalous. You know what's even more surprising? How the father responds. He divides his wealth. You're kidding me. Here's a man, who, the younger brother is entitled to, in, in the case where there are two uh, sons, one-third of the property. Elder brother gets a double portion, so he's getting a third of the property. This is the property on which the father is still living his life. He's living there on the land, he's living in a house, he's got livestock, he's got goods. All of these things he is now giving, one-third of them he is giving to this younger son, and the younger son is cashing it out. That's really a better translation of verse 13. The son gathered all he had. As another, uh, it's often thought that that means he's cashing all he has. So he's taking that property even while his father is sleeping on it, and he's liquidating it. He's selling it to somebody else, puts that money in his pocket, and he is on his way out of town. The father embraces the shame. He divides. The second action, he runs. You know the story, so we'll look at it more later in detail, but... The son runs, he squanders the wealth, there's a famine, he gets hungry, he finds himself with the swine, and he's coming to the end of himself. He should shortly die. And he wakes up, and he starts to make his way back to his home. Now, Ken Bailey tells us that there is a practice in first century Judaism called the kazaza. The kazaza is a ceremony of rejection. And it was used this way. If a child, a Jewish child, takes the property of the community and squanders it among Gentiles or non-Jews and then has the chutzpah to try to come back and benefit again from the community after he has shamed the community and diminished the value of its shared holdings... He would be rejected, kazaza. So there's a ceremony. They would take a big 
clay pot, and the elders would stand in front of this uh, returning prodigal and smash it at his feet and say, you are cut off from this people. Cut off. Removed. Eliminated. Forsaken. As we hear later on from the cross. And so it is as this father anticipates this outcome, he dashes through the ranks of the villagers upon seeing in the distance his son return. Surely the elders are gathering in rage to vindicate their honor to avenge their shame on this returning son, the father runs. Ken Bailey says, the last time this man ran, it must have been at least 40 years. Because in a patriarchal culture like that, uh, you showed your dignity by walking slowly. And so to run was an act of shame. And to run, you'd have to hitch up your robe and you'd bare your legs. Again, shameful. But this is what this father does. Hitches up the robe and races, Jesus tells us, to embrace this wayward son. He takes his shame upon him. The father takes his social standing in the community, what's left of it, and he imparts it to his son by honoring him and absolving him of his shame. He takes the kazaza on himself. Third thing, he, he pleads. Well, the, uh, there's another son in this equation. He's the elder brother. He's out in the field when he hears that the son has returned and the father is throwing a party. And, of course, this galls him to no end to think that now, having uh, um, made such a poor financial decision... Having lost his honor, the father is now adding insult to injury by welcoming the son back and throwing a party for him and having this celebration. Of course, the elder brother will have no part of it. And he remains at a distance uh, in the field. This would be a breach of hospitality that would be egregious in that culture. Uh, Middle Eastern peasants would say that the sons had the responsibility of hosting guests. The elder son in particular was the chief host for any party. He should be in the house, but he's not. He's out in the field. Remember what happens to in, in the book of Esther when the king of Persia uh, uh, is rejected by his wife Vashti when she is invited to the party. She's permanently banished. This insult is too much to bear, and it should be for this father as well. This son ought to be sent for bound and disciplined. But what does he do? He leaves the party. He goes out to the field himself. And he pleads. Literally, he begs with his elder son. He humiliates himself before this shameful son. He takes that shame upon himself in the eyes of all at this party to give him the dignity that the father wants him to have. Well, the point in all of this is that this father does what no other father would do. That's the heart of this. It's not that the father does what you could expect a father to do. It's that a father does here what you can't expect a father to do. 
He looks at you and he looks at me. And no matter how thick our guilt, he says, let me take that from you. And he says, let me give you my righteousness in Jesus Christ. And and this is what grace is. Here's my definition. Grace is taking the trouble that someone else deserves in order to give them the good that they don't. Grace is taking the trouble that somebody else deserves upon myself and giving them the good that they do not deserve. It's this grace that's at the center of all of Jesus' relationships. And it's this grace that becomes the center of any relationship uh, in which Jesus is a part. I love what Luther says. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. God doesn't love us to find what pleases him. He loves us to give us what pleases him. So how do we respond to the father in this story? I want to give you two points of application. One relatively brief, the other a little more extended. Two responses. The first is, let the story identify grace in your relationships. Let this story identify grace in your relationships. Remember it, share it, and believe it. Believe it for your relationships, however strained they may be. And here's one specific idea that you might try. Read this story, the whole parable, with the names of those folks in that circle of primary relationships that you were thinking of earlier. Just put those names. Put your name and your friends' names in the story and then read the story through. It would be great if you could even do it with your friends. You may not be able to do that. But at a family, you might. Over the dinner table, put each other's names in there and then read it. So for me, it might look like this. My wife's name, Anne. Anne came to George and said, George, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. Oh, gosh. There's not much, Ann. <laughs> I'd give you the debt, all you want. Or, so maybe a, a, um, a co-worker. I might take Renee, for example. Uh, I might say, um, Renee, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your colleague. Right? And then read through the story. So put those names in and read through the story. And then once you've done that, switch the names around so that each person is identified with each of the different characters. And ask yourself some questions after having done that. How did it feel? What surprised me? What did I learn? How does grace feel? What trouble in these relationships did you end up taking that somebody else deserved? And what good did you give them that they didn't deserve? So that's the first application. Let the story identify grace in your relationships. And the second and the more important one is this. Let God be your father. It sounds so simple, but it's not. Let God be your father. Now, I realize immediately this is problematic for many of us. We resist this, and we have good reason to resist this sometimes. And and I want to address two misconceptions about God as Father before we go any further. There are two understandings of God that are are very problematic for us, and I call them this, the sugar daddy and the starched patriarch. Okay, 
Neither of them is the God as father we're talking about in this story. The sugar daddy and the starch patriarch. The sugar daddy is God who distorts love. See, for the sugar daddy, the relationship with you is all about you. It's whatever you want. The story of a seminarian who was falling in love with this woman and he wanted to ask for her hand in marriage. So, of course, you know, he does what every gentleman does and he sits down with the parents. And his father's old school, so he takes him into the den and closes the door and wants to ask him the questions, right? You know, he says, so you're a seminarian, hmm? She means you're a student, right? Grad school. Um, exactly how do you plan to buy an engagement ring for my daughter? He says, well, I plan to be a diligent student, and God will provide the money that I need. <laughs> oh, really? Well, what about a home? You know, to pay the rent or to buy a home? How are you going to take care of my daughter? And he says, well, uh, I'm going to trust God, and God will provide the money for the rent. Hmm. Well, what about um, if you should have a child? Do you have a way of educating, caring for that child? Again, I'm just going to trust God. So he, he uh, comes out, and his wife says, well, how did it go? She says, he says, well, um, the bad news is he doesn't have any way of providing for our daughter. The good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> right? But let me ask you, who really wants a God who actually is a sugar daddy? who has no identity of his own, who is nothing more than the projection of your own wish fulfillment. Do you really want a God? Do you really believe there is a God who's nothing more than a cosmic vending machine buzzing in the break room, that whenever you have a desire or a need, you can just reach up and pound a button and out comes something sugary? That's not who this father is. He's not a sugar daddy. This is a firm, strong father who knows the difference between his will and the will of his children. In fact, he gives them the dignity of that discovery. He opens up his arms and says to this younger son, I want you with me at home, but I know you've got to make your own choice. And he gives him freedom. And he gives us freedom to go as far into the distant country as we want, to go as far away from the one who created us and who gives us life as we want. We can go off into infinite distance towards alienation and death if we wish to do so. So we can discover the freedom and the difference between our will and his will. And yet, he is not a, stage, a starched patriarch either. If the sugar daddy is the one who distorts love, the starched patriarch is the one who distorts power See, for the starch patriarch, it's not all about you. It's all about him. It's all about the father. And many of us have relationships with fathers that make it just so hard to see God as a father. Because we have dads who sadly have distorted power in our lives, who have used it to hurt us, who have used it to withdraw affection from us. Many of us have dads who, frankly, are just too male for us to begin to understand or want to understand God as a father. But again, we've got to look at this through the, the eyes of the original context. And yes, this is a patriarchal, hierarchical society, as Jesus tells this story, the one he's in. But I want to argue that he's subverting the society every opportunity he can. And one of the ways he does that is by showing a God who is father, the great provider and leader, who gives up power 
for the sake of love. This father in this story has not taken advantage of power. He yields it. He bows. He stoops to absorb our shame at every moment. Not a starched patriarch or a sugar a daddy. But you and I have to learn to let God be our father. God is, as Thomas Snail, the Scottish theologian and pastor, says, the forgotten father. It's the name of one of his books. We've got a rich theology of Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. We know that. We've got a rich theology of the Holy Spirit. He's God with us, and we know that. But Thomas Snail says, we have an anemic theology of God as father. We've got to reclaim that. We've got to relate to father. Not just know who he is, but know him. The Father is the distinct New Testament name for God. This idea that God is relating to his people as a father does emerge in the Old Testament revelation. But it's not until Jesus comes, the Son of God, and steps on the stage and actually addresses God directly as our Father that you can see people's minds beginning to blow. We are to address, this is the name that Jesus uses of God in every reference he, he makes to, to God, the Father, except for one, when he's on the cross and he, salts, and he cites Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is to Jesus, Father. And because God is to Jesus, Father, God is to us, Father, as well. And there's the grace. P.T. Forsyth, another Scottish pastor and theologian, writes a great sermon and a great essay, which you can find if you Google it. It's called God the Holy Father. I commend it to you. He says, our problem is we don't put enough in the name Father to know its true meaning. We put too little into the name Father, Forsyth writes, when we think no higher than natural fatherhood at its heavenly best. (laughs) It was not by a father or all earth's fatherhood that God revealed himself. In other words, this father is not doing what we expect normal fathers to do. That would have been but manifestation. Just another father. This one bigger and better and heavenly. No, not revelation. It was by a son and a cross. What I mean is that we make too little of the father when we do not rise beyond love to grace, which is holy love, suffering, hate, and redeeming it. The miracle of the world is not that God should love his children or even his prodigals. Do not even the publicans do likewise. The miracle of the world is that God should love, forgive, and redeem his enemies. That his heart should atone for them to his own holy nature. That he should consecrate by means of a suffering greater even than they devised. All the suffering that they might have to endure. And by their central sin and its judgment, destroy sin at its center. That is fatherhood when we speak of God. And that is the cross in the parable of the prodigal son. God has stepped into not only our shame, but into our evil, into our death, in order to absorb it, to give us freely what we don't deserve. See, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the prodigal for us. For our sake, the Son of God has taken on humanity. He's left his home. He has journeyed to the distant country to come and live among us, as us, to die on the cross on our behalf, and then to return home with our humanity in hand, 
to present his own righteousness, his own obedience to the Heavenly Father on our behalf and say, here, Father, here they are, your beloved children in himself. So that when God can look at you and look at me, now what he's saying is, well done, my good and faithful child. That's grace. Jesus has taken the trouble we deserve to give the good that we don't. I don't know if any of you know the name uh, Bo Bergdahl. Uh, two years ago, I, I was on vacation in Idaho and uh, sat at church next to a man who, right after the passing of the peace, got into a conversation. I, at first, I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, who is this guy? We passed the peace. What are we talking about? And, and, and he kept talking even as the service continued. There was like music and he's continuing to talk to me. He won't let it go. And he doesn't know who I am and I don't know who he is, but I begin to figure out he's a father. And he's talking about his son named Bo Bergdahl, who is a private in the United States Army. And you may remember a couple years ago, Haley, Idaho, this man was captured in Afghanistan by the Taliban. Bo Bergdahl. And he's been there. And, you know, there were yellow ribbons everywhere. And not a lot of talk about Bo Bergdahl. Kind of forgotten a little bit about Bo Bergdahl. But just this week, NPR, this father is... In, by the way, he's asking me to pray. He wouldn't stop asking me to pray for his son, Bo, which I had been doing. But this father comes on NPR. And two more than two years later, many of us have forgotten Bo Bergdahl. But the dad has not forgotten the dad comes on the radio and he has a message for the Taliban in Afghanistan. And he says, even though you're my son's captors, I want to thank you for your hospitality because he's also your guest. And he delivers this message now in Pashtun and Arabic. See, he's taught himself these two new languages. That's the heart of a father. That's the, just a glimpse of the grace of God for you and for me. You have a father in heaven who does not forget you. Whether you're at home or in the distant country, he knows where you are today. You're on his heart and he will speak your language. He will speak the language of your captors. He will do whatever he needs to do in order to bring you home in his love. And all you need to do is relate to him as a father who gives you grace. Well, I want to close with this is an ancient prayer that history has preserved for us from the early church. It's, it's, it's possibly the oldest prayer that we have outside the prayers of the New Testament. It's, it, we have it in this thing called the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. No later than the second century. Here's the prayer. It was offered at the communion table. It was offered as the followers of Jesus Christ gathered around the dismembered elements of Jesus' body and blood where they were receiving communion with their father, a communion that they understood had implications for their relationships. And they said this, we thank you, Holy Father, for your sacred name, which you have lodged in our hearts. That word lodged is shepherd language. It means to nail down like a tent. You have nailed down the name Holy Father in our hearts. And that's where communion comes from. And that's where reconciliation comes from. 
And that's where peace comes from. We're going to talk about how that happens, but let's close with a word of prayer, asking God to do that same work in our lives as well. Holy Father, Son and Holy Spirit, would you, this morning, allow us to understand how you embrace us in your grace, that we might know before you we stand in Jesus Christ between the love, the perfect love of a father for a son. We live our lives in the atmosphere of heaven's joy. We forget that. Help us to remember. Use this story to remind us. And nail down the name of a father who loves us in grace that we might celebrate our communion with you and that we might extend that communion into all of our relationships and so be a scandalously gracious people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.